Well, I'm so happy when Carrie invited me to be a part of this series, uh, Bringing Heaven to Earth. And when I first heard that, it reminded me of a very small passage of uh, scripture found in Luke's gospel that I'd like to kind of base my whole message on uh, in our time together today. The, The verse begins with these words, there will be more joy in heaven. Now, we'll finish the verse before the message is over. You'll find out why there will be more joy in heaven. But if there's more joy in heaven for some reason, there's already joy in heaven. And passing on heaven to earth here right now, it sounds to me like it might be a really good topic to focus on for a little bit about that whole concept of joy. I mean, we all need joy. I know I need joy. I get too intense. I take myself too seriously. You know, it's very well-intentioned, but I just get all upside down on things that I really don't need to. I just need to have more joy in my life. Um, Being here this weekend reminds me of, you know, I'm I'm usually in church every weekend, just at a different church, traveling around, and there are doing, I do a lot of churches that are very similar to the program that you have here in that there's a Saturday night service and then there are Sunday morning services. And I was at a church uh, over in Northern California that had the same paradigm and so I'm, I'm very, you know, well put together that way. I like to get there early to see what's going on. So Saturday night I came extra early and made sure that the microphone worked and how far I could walk on the stage and how far I could walk up front before I fall over and, you know, all the different things. And I was very comfortable because I had done all the pre-meeting stuff that I normally get to do. And the Saturday night service went very, very well. So, woke up early Sunday morning and my routine is to do the same thing again. Get there a little early, make sure the microphone works, make sure I don't, uh, they didn't shorten the stage so that I'd fall off with one less step. Find I walk around and I remember walking into the room and to my surprise, no one was there yet. I mean, no one, not any, you know, staff. So I just quietly sat in the front and said, well, they, they know we can do it because we did it last night. I guess they're just, you know, a little more comfortable with that. And I just sat quietly at the front. And I began to realize, you know, the clock is ticking. We're getting very close to when the service is supposed to begin. And there's still literally no one in this room. I am the only person in this room. And I'm looking around and I don't know what I'm going to do. And it's like, what in the world? And it, it comes time for the service. And I realize, well, it's clear there's some sort of miscommunication here. And a church staff member runs in and says, there you are. We've been looking all over for you. Come on. And no one had told me that the Sunday services met at a different part of the campus than the Saturday night service. So no wonder I'm sitting there by myself. There's no meeting there on Sunday morning. So I run in and I'm all upside down and I'm quoting Old Testament verses from the New Testament and I'm singing when I'm supposed to be talking and, you know, I'm not even sure I'm fully clothed. 
And it's like, what in the world? And I was so intense, it was a horrible thing, and I realized, you know what? I just need to chill here. I need to back down. I'm a little too intense for this whole thing. Now, you might not have any illustrations of that in your own life, so this is just for me today, but it reminds me of uh, what I call a maxim. You know what a maxim is? It's like a proverb, like a motto that I have tried to adopt and live and make more a part of my life uh, in these uh, more current days. And I want to share it with you. Are you ready for it? Here's what it is. Take God seriously, but don't take yourself so seriously. Take God seriously, but don't take yourself so seriously. That, to me, is a byproduct of experiencing joy in your life. And so as we look at the concept of joy, specifically from the scriptures today, I hope you'll be encouraged to put it into practice in your life. Now, I love to study uh, great communicators, master teachers, and of course, the finest communicator ever on the planet was the Lord Jesus. And one of his favorite te techniques in communicating, not only with his disciples, but with just the crowds that he would talk to, is what a, a teacher would call the principle of contrast. That I can help you understand what I'm saying by also telling you what I'm not saying. And when you see one versus the other, it helps the truth come through. So. To kick us off here, I want you to consider three statements that I'm calling what joy is not, okay? Here they are. Number one, joy is not from the outside, okay? Number two, joy is not the absence of difficulty. And number three, joy is not limited to here on earth. Now, we'll unpack each of those so that we can get an idea of at least these three particular scriptures where we see the word joy. I want to start in the Old Testament with a wonderful proverb by King Solomon. It's in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22, where it says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. A joyful heart is good medicine. Here's how I am uh, restructuring that for our understanding today. Joy, number one, is the revitalizing of the soul. Joy is the revitalizing of the soul. Solomon says it's like a good medicine that starts from within and works its way out. And that's the first thing we want to see on this revitalizing of the soul, is that joy comes from the inside. The Old Testament is written originally in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for joyful there can be translated several different ways. It can be a joyful heart or a rejoicing heart, rejoicing being a variation of the word joy. It can be a cheerful heart. And also, interesting to me, it can also be translated a discerning heart is good medicine. The reason that's interesting for me is when I talk about joy and when I hear people talk about joy, oftentimes joy gets listed as one of those superficial feelings. It's lightweight. People that are joyful are joyful because they don't know what's really going on. I mean, how can you live in today's world and be joyful? 
I mean, all you got to do is watch the news. All you got to do is read. It's, it's a horrible time. How can you say we're joyful? That sounds like a very unrealistic, superficial way to live. Yet Solomon kicks us off by saying it's a discerning way to live because it's coming from the inside, all right? Joy is an inside job. Oftentimes you hear joy and happiness contrasted. Happiness comes from circumstances that work their way into your life. Joy comes from within and helps you deal with the circumstances that you may have. You may stop by and buy a lottery ticket and win $50 million on the way home from church. That will produce happiness. Something on the outside has caused you to be happy. Although if you study the track record of these people that win, it's, it's not a happy picture. But anyway, you have an outside circumstance that causes you uh, to feel happiness, but joy comes from the inside. When Paul wrote to the uh, church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, he said, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your spirit. Don't be conformed. In other words, don't let the world dictate to you what is good and what is bad, but rather be transformed. Let it come from within and work its way out. It's a very significant contrast for a person who knows Jesus as their savior, that when you have a relationship with Christ, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you who can produce this joy in your life rather than being totally dependent on having a good day or quote unquote a bad day. Okay, so joy, the revitalizing of the spirit, joy comes from the inside. When I see this verse, it makes me think of something from a long time ago. Some of you won't even know what I'm gonna talk about here, but there used to be a magazine. I mean, that's something people don't even know what it is anymore, a magazine. There used to be a magazine called Reader's Digest. Anybody old enough to remember Reader's Digest? Oh, I got a lot of my peeps here in this room, yeah. My kids have no idea what it is. But anyway, Reader's Digest was this magazine that came out. And they had all these different articles and they would condense novels and do all this kind of stuff. And one of the running columns every month in Reader's Digest had the title, Laughter is the Best Medicine. And it would be some sort of joke or anecdote or funny story that would bring a smile to your life. Laughter is the best medicine. It's exactly what Solomon is saying when he's saying a joyful heart is that good medicine. We've reduced it in our family to the phrase, if you don't laugh about it, you're gonna cry. You ever had one of those situations? If you don't laugh about it, you're just, you're just gonna break down and cry. Years ago when I first started out as a speaker, one of the things that I was very interested in doing beyond ministry in churches was breaking into the business community, the corporate world, and one of the things that I discovered very quickly that um, at that time, businesses and corporations are looking for is some sort of preview of what a speaker might look like before they actually go ahead and hire them. And I've been in this long enough that we're talking back in the days where they wanted you to produce not only a DVD, but a, but a video, if you're old enough to remember videos. And, and they made a big deal about don't make a video in your, in your basement. Don't make it out in the garage. We want this done very professionally. Do this with high quality video cameras. I mean, go for it. This is gonna be your one little 10 minute slice 
to get hired by a Fortune 100 company. So do it right. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do this. And God beautifully orchestrated an opportunity not too long afterwards where I was going to speak at a church in that wonderful bastion of Christianity, Las Vegas. And I'll never forget going to that church to discover they had completely redone their main auditorium, filled with state-of-the-art cameras and video. And, my, and, and I remember saying to Kathy, my wife, this is it. God has answered our prayer. This is where we're going to get the state-of-the-art quality video that's going to open the doors for us in other ways. So I remember... I was out in the, uh, in the crowd. We, we, would, we sat over here. We sat in the front couple of seats over uh, to your left. And we're listening to the music and we're getting all involved. And, and the pastor comes up to introduce me to speak. Now, different speakers do different things. If you read all the public speaking books, they tell you, like, right before you get up to give a speech, you know, take a good deep breath, you know, and shake it off, get loose, shake it off, you know. And, and then do whatever else you need to to feel more comfortable when you go up there. Well, I have this weird thing. I just did it in the back before I came out. That beyond doing all that, I always want to make sure my socks are pulled up. To me, there's something that's just disrespectful about being in front of you with droopy socks. <laughs> so the last thing I do while I'm sitting over there is check to see that my socks are pulled up. I hear, so let's have a nice round of applause for our speaker today, Bill Butterworth. And I squeeze my wife's hand and I run up the stairs and I walk onto the stage, unaware of the fact that when I rolled up my one sock, I had actually put it up <laughs> over my pant leg. And because I was unaware of it at the beginning, I was unaware of it through the entire message. I did the whole thing, but I felt so good, like, boy, this is great. This is going to be exactly what I need, and I'm walking all around, and I'm really giving it to him, and I'm so excited. And occasionally, I'd look over at Kathy. We were much younger in our married life, and so we didn't have all our signals uh, figured out <laughs> at the time. But I remember every time I would look over at her, she would just look and go, Well, like I said, I, I didn't know what that meant. We had no previous discussion of if I go like this, check your socks. <laughs> and some of the guys might know where this is going. She was going like this, and all I could think of was something else. And so I remember I kept turning around and making sure everything was all together in the back <laughs> and then coming back. You know, and it was like, I think we're all together here. I don't understand what the problem is. And I remember I finished the message and I went back and I sat down and she was just shaking her head. She said, well, big guy, it's not going to happen. I said, what? She goes, and then I saw, and I will do this now or I'll forget to do this for the rest of the message. And we were so disappointed and all, and all I could think of was, well, I better laugh about this. I better take myself less seriously because if I don't, I'm going to break down and weep right in the front of this entire church congregation because this was a wonderful opportunity. Okay, laughter is the best medicine. Some of us need to take a chill pill. 
Some of us need to understand, if I can be so blunt, why the rest of the family is laughing at you. You are funny. And it's not because you're trying to be. You are genuinely hilarious in, in kind of a pathetic way. But <laughs> join in and realize, oh, did I say that? Did I, I didn't mean, oh my goodness. You know, you're gonna be a lot easier to live with if you understand that joy is the revitalizing of the soul, okay? So that's kind of starting with an intro for joy that's pretty elementary and pretty basic. We're, we're gonna make a big jump when we go to the second point and talk about one of the deepest elements of joy that you can imagine. This one is in the New Testament in the book of James chapter one. And what it's gonna teach us is joy is the result of difficulty. Joy is the result of difficulty. James 1, verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Joy is not the absence of difficulty. Joy is the result of difficulty. And that's a very difficult concept to consider, but it's, it's very key in Scripture. Now, if you study the history of the Bible, the, the history of Christianity, many of us believe that the book of James was actually the first book of the Bible written, written about 45 AD. And all the way down 20 years later, Peter is still alive, the great disciple, and Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter four the same thing. Beloved, chapter four, verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing is happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. There's that derivation of joy. Keep on experiencing joy even though you're going through difficulty. That has to be incredibly relevant to every person that hears that verse this day. Your level of difficulty may be a little bit lighter than it's been. It may be the heaviest it's ever been. But the issue is, as a result of that difficulty, you can experience joy. We think about difficulty and we tend to think about the most severe kinds of things. And I'm sure there's plenty of folks who have severe difficulty in their life right now. I didn't expect COVID to impact the way it did. I didn't expect to be laid off. I didn't think our finances would be as tight as they are right now. I didn't think it would lead to so much tension at home. I think it turned my kids into crazy people. I think it turned my spouse into a crazy person. I think my neighbors are all nuts. I don't know what's going on, but it's a very difficult time. And yet, throughout your life experience, and throughout every other person that you know, there are all these issues that teach us 
We all have problems so we can all have joy. We all have problems so we can all have joy. Some have been literally grabbed by the throat with problems that have led to addictions. And they try bravely to fight off this addiction on their own, and they realize a better way to face this is to get help and support from other people. And and the whole recovery movement is a result of difficulty in life that hopefully will eventually lead us to joy. But whether you're in traditional recovery or not, from God's view, we're all in need of recovery because none of us are perfect. So if you have any kind of flaw, any kind of dysfunction, any kind of struggle in your life, you need what only God can deliver. Uh, David wrote it this way back in the Psalms. Listen to Psalm 30, the, the first five verses. I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. You refused to let my enemies triumph over me. Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you restored my health. You brought me up from the grave, O Lord. You kept me from falling into the pit. Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. The joy that comes in the morning follows the weeping that lasts through the night. It's a logical progression that we see all throughout the scriptures and all throughout our personal life experience. That joy is the result of our problems. And we all have problems, so we can all have joy. Now, it's interesting to me that we see this verse in the beginning of James chapter one, and then about a dozen verses later, we see, actually down in verse 17, so 16 verses later, we see this. Every good gift bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good gift is from God. And this says to me, as a result of our time with joy, is that joy is the gift that keeps on giving. Now, how can I say joy is the gift that keeps on giving? I can say that because we should never be surprised when there are difficulties in our lives. Peter said, don't think it's like something unusual. Oh my goodness, you can't believe it. I had trouble today. Surprise, surprise. No, 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 no. It's just a typical day. Life can be difficult, but as a result of that difficulty, you have joy. Joy is the gift that keeps on giving. I grew up in Philadelphia, classic middle-class home, very Norman Rockwell kind of thing. I think of Christmas, for example. We'd come down the stairs on Christmas morning and look at all the gifts wrapped under the Christmas tree, and I had already scoped them out in advance. I knew what were toys, and I knew what were clothes, and I remember being about eight years old and thinking, well, I'm going to always open the toys first just in case uh, something untoward would happen and I'd have a massive heart attack before I got all the gifts opened. I don't want to waste my last hours opening clothes. 
So I'd open all the toys, and then there was nothing left but clothes. And I even had those all figured out by opening ones that I thought might be something I might like versus, oh boy, mom, new socks. This is, this is just a thrill. You know, and, and there was one gift in particular that I always dreaded. Matter of fact, about eight years old, I remember, I scoped it out and I started jamming it deeper under the tree in hopes that my mother would forget. And sure enough, every Christmas, she said, oh, Billy, you got one more. It's, see, it must be tucked way under the tree. And I pull it out and I open it up and go through this complete farce of saying, oh boy, mom, this is great, I'm so excited. It was new underwear. Now, when you're an eight-year-old boy, new underwear has no draw or appeal whatsoever. It, it's stupid. You spend good money on underwear when there are toys out there waiting to be brought home. So I turn nine, same thing. Open all the toys, open all the clothes, jam the underwear a little deeper in. Oh, Billy, I think there's one more. Oh, boy, just great, Mom. These are great. New underwear, you know. Oh, it's always fun each year. Is it going to be Hanes or is it going to be Fruit of the Loom? You know, I, oh boy. So I turned 10 and I thought, okay, this is the year. I'm in double figures now. I'm going to grow up and I'm not going to play this game anymore. So I remember jamming that underwear under the tree. And sure enough, she says, Billy, you got one more left. And I open it up and I go, wow, new underwear. And I looked at my mom with just a look of disgust. And I said, I have a question for you. Why do I need new underwear? And I believe all moms of all time are somehow tutored in some grand global university. <laughs> because every mom I know that's ever been asked that question answers the same way. It begins with the classic words, suppose you are in an accident. Right? I saw some women's mouths move as I was saying that. All right? You know that. Suppose you were in an accident. And mom would continue, you know, that ambulance is going to come. They're going to get you. You know the first thing they're going to do, right? I said, no, what? She said, they're going to cut off your pants. <laughs> well, you're a 10-year-old boy, and you're visualizing, they're going to cut off my pants? I mean, that's traumatic enough, but she's not done. They're going to cut off your pants, you know. And mom wide-eyed, and she says, and boy, if they discover you're not wearing new clean underwear. And she'd always trail off there and just walk into the kitchen. <laughs> leaving me to conclude, they're going to leave me there to die. <laughs> I mean, I might get into the ER, and it's like, oh, we got, a, oh, we got dirty underwear on table B. Let's move on to table A. And I tell you this story because I'm a few years older than 10 now, and my thoughts about new underwear have changed. I now see them as a good gift. <laughs> At the time, I didn't see them as a good gift. I have four boys. I asked their mom permission to be the one that I could tell thee, suppose you were. So I've had four experiences sharing it with my boys. It's kind of a rite of passage, the new underwear story. You are now a man. <laughs> but we all have stories like that. We have stuff that happened in our life that broke our heart, that ripped out our guts that never, ever 
had the level of discouragement through anything else than that experience. And yet, some of us look back now and we realize, you know, God used that for a reason. I'm a better person today. I am more like the Lord Jesus because I had to endure that pain, that good and perfect gift that I didn't see as good or perfect at the time. But now I realize it was exactly what I needed and God knew it. So, joy is the revitalizing of the soul. Joy is the result of difficulty. Time for one more, and it answers the question that we began in the beginning. What is that there is more joy in heaven? What's that all about? Here's the third and final point. Joy is the reaction in heaven when someone responds to the gospel. Joy is the reaction in heaven when someone responds to the gospel. Jesus teaches this in Luke chapter 15, and he says in verse 7, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. More joy in heaven over one person understanding the good news of the gospel. Now, before we unwrap that any further, let's stop and, and realize one thing. If joy is in heaven, then joy is eternal. Joy is not a passing emotion. It's not a feel-good feeling for 24 hours. It's not this superficial, unimportant, you know, silly thing we talk about. Joy is eternal. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus, as he's teaching, talks about a time when God will say to those who know him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord, which most see as speaking of heaven. Enter into that heavenly place of joy. So heaven and joy are eternal. Now, this specific verse is fascinating to me because I, I think what we're saying here is that God is interested in the severe sinner even if the self-righteous are not. God is interested in the severe sinner even if the self-righteous are not. Let me tell you what I think that means. I, I identify that uh, to that in a certain level in that um, I was brought up in church. I went to church every Sunday. Now, where I went to church, it was not real clear from the get-go exactly how one became related to God. How does one enjoy a relationship with Christ? And somewhere along the line, I got the idea that the way you relate to God is to try to be as much like God as you can, and so you work really hard. You do really good things. Good boys go to heaven, bad boys go to hell. And so I tried my very best to be a good boy. And I felt that one of the keys, one of the finest ways to show how good I was, was to go to church. So I went to church every Sunday in hopes that it would earn me eternal life. It would earn me a relationship with God. Now, if you can imagine 
classic Northeastern church-going, little boy in a little wool blue blazer with gray woolen slacks, a red tie, and a white shirt. You go to church every Sunday for a year as a little boy. You're given what they call a perfect attendance medal. It's a little pin that you would wear on your little blue blazer lapel, okay? And you go to church every Sunday. The second year, they give you a little gold bar that hangs off the perfect attendance medal that says second. Third year, third bar. Fourth year, you know, I was eight, I had them down to my belly button. And I was convinced that if I were to die, I would just ask to be buried in that suit and I would stand before God and God would say, why should I let you into my heaven? And I'd say, well, look at me. I'm a company man. I got these down to my hips now. I mean, you got to let me in. And God would be so impressed. Wow, you went to a lot of church. Come on in. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to church. We're all here in support of going to church. But there's a great old quote that I love. Going to church won't make you a Christian any more than going into a garage will make you a car. That's not the purpose of church, is that you have to keep going in order to earn a relationship. And see, that's what that verse is talking about when it's talking about the 99 righteous persons. That's what I was. I was very self-righteous. Oh, you don't go to church. You don't have a chance, you know. I go to church every Sunday. I'll wear my blue blazer on Sunday. You'll see. It makes me lean. I have so many medals. <laughs> That's not what it's about. The gospel is that Jesus died for all of us. Jesus died for sinners. And whether you are a lightweight sinner or whether you are a world-class sinner, we all have sinned. And that is what keeps us from a relationship with God. So rather than working to earn it, Jesus, by dying on the cross, offers it to us freely as a gift. Christmas time, I'm going downstairs. What if my dad pulled a fast one? This year, you buy all your own gifts. There's a present down there that's worth $4. I'll take a check. That's not Christmas. That's not a gift. I'm buying these gifts. No, a gift is something that is offered to you for free. And when I receive that gift, I have eternal life. And when I receive that gift, what does the verse say? There will be more joy in heaven. You can cause heaven to rejoice right now. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can do that in the privacy of your own mind and be born into God's family and all of heaven will be rejoicing. So why don't you just take a moment and let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you are here listening to this and you have never made that decision to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, in the quietness of your own mind, would you do that right now? It doesn't have to be long and involved. I remember when I did it, I said a silent prayer that went something like, Dear Lord, there's still a lot about this that I don't understand, but I understand now I need you in my life. I've, I'm not perfect. So the best I know how, I receive you, Jesus. I accept you as my personal savior. And the Bible says, the second you pray that prayer, you're born into God's family and all of heaven is rejoicing. 
Let me be quiet for, for just a moment. You pray that silent prayer right now. Dear Lord, there is rejoicing in heaven right now, and we give you praise and, and thank you. On behalf of each and every one of us, thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus to die for each of us, and that he rose again to prove that he was God three days later. Lord, I pray that every person hearing these words today will make a commitment to take you seriously, but take themselves less seriously. May we be committed to the power of joy that you have given us that comes from within, the revitalizing of our soul. Thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Hey, church. Thanks for listening to the Woodlands Church with Carrie Shook podcast. By listening, we hope that you're encouraged wherever you are. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can get the latest messages each week. For more information on Woodlands Church, check out the description for a link to our website and how to connect with us. We hope you have a great week.